Well, when I first started subbing for, for Sean, uh, and for those on the tape, I'm Michael Stone, I'm not Sean, uh, but the first time I started subbing for some Sean, I did First Peter, chapter one, and then we took a break and went to Psalm 34, and then on the 24th, we went to Psalm 139, and saw how we were fearfully and wonderfully made. And, uh, but not going to do a Psalm today, going to go back to First Peter, to chapter two, and start at chapter two, and see how much ground we can cover, see if we can cover maybe the first 12 verses of First Peter two. <clears throat> First Peter, of course, was written by Peter to uh, Christians in, in what is now called Turkey uh, that were going through persecution and opposition, Peter says, mainly just because you're living your life for Christ as you're supposed to. Uh, and, and, you know, so in order to help them avoid discouragement, uh, he wrote First Peter, uh, every chapter in First Peter talks about suffering, by the way, and uh, explains to them that what they're going through is, is not to be a surprise. Uh, it's something to be expected and, and something that uh, is well-pleasing to the Lord. And one of the ways he, he encourages them is, is, is he explains to them who they are in Christ Jesus. Uh, and... Uh, for our discouragement, we need often to remember who we are in Christ and everything that we have uh, in Christ. So I'll start reading. We'll read the first 12 verses and then, then get into it as best we can. So 1 Peter 2, 1 begins, but so put away all malice, <coughs> all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Okay, cooperate. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, most translations translate as the spear, pure spiritual milk of the word. And so just remember that. I don't know why the ESV didn't put the word in there, but they left it out. Uh, the spiritual milk of the word, that by it you may grow up unto salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to, a holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. <clears throat> Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you see the last word that he says, you know, keep your conduct honorable before the Gentiles, before the non-believers, so that when they see your good works and malign them, they'll be put to shame. Well, any thoughts, comments, or questions about what we just read? <coughs> Speak now or forever hold your peace. You can interrupt me anytime you want to, but that's, you know, totally up to you. All right? Okay, chapter 1. Peter gave his readers, this is just his background, five commands based on who they are, the elect exiles of God, and what they have received, eternal life, being born again, and that eternal life is being kept secure for them by God in heaven. So he says, as obedient children of God, number one in verse 13 of chapter one, fix your hope firmly on the grace that is to be revealed. Number two, in verse 14, do not be conformed to your futile way of living. In other words, stop living as you did as non-Christians. Number three, in verses 15 and 16, he says, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. In other words, start living to please your heavenly Father. And then number four, in verse 17, he says, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile, desiring to please your Father in all things. And then number five, the last one, finally, love one another earnestly, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God that remains. Did I go faster? Nope. Now where'd I go? Uh, I just messed myself up. just took myself right out of my notes. Yeah. Oh, let's just praise the Lord anyhow. Here we go. Okay. And this word, Peter says, is the good news that was preached to you. I can't get my mouse to cooperate. It's supposed to be scrolling up and down and it ain't moving. Anyway, the last command that, that Peter gave to, to his readers in, in chapter 1 was to love one another earnestly since you have been born again by, by the word of God. And uh, the question then is, well, how were they to do that? How were they to love one another earnestly? And he begins to answer that in chapter 2, beginning at, at verse 1, with the word so. Now, so can also be translated wherefore or therefore. Or so, uh, therefore, he says, in order to love one another earnestly, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, all of which would hinder them from loving one another as he had commanded. Oh, be patient. Now, we could take the time to explain what malice and envy and all those five things that Peter mentions, uh, but I have what's known as the New International Version, the Reader's Version. And it gives this wonderful translation that explains all five of those. 
It says, so get rid of every kind of evil. That's the malice. Stop telling lies. That's the deceit. Don't pretend to be something you are not. That's the hypocrisy. Stop wanting what others have. That's the envy. And don't speak against each other. That's the slander. We're all family, brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope you realize that. And we are to love one another earnestly. Because as John tells us in, in, in John chapter 4, he says, Love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. He that loves not does not know God. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. You ever sing that? We love it. Let us love one another, love one another. For lovers of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not. Oh, well, thanks for singing along with me. Anyway, uh, at least one person shook their head. They, they sang it. So, <laughs> so Peter, Peter lists five behaviors that, that hinder that love and, and, and says uh, that, that they are to put them completely out of their lives. Put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. So now how are we to do that? How do we put away such behavior? He explains in beginning at verse 2. Likewise, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word of God, that by, you, by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good or gracious. So we are to do this by longing for pure spiritual milk and by tasting the goodness and kindness of the Lord and having tasted that the Lord is good to the point that that kind of behavior no longer tastes good. So like newborn babes, he says, newborn infants having been born again, having experienced a spiritual rebirth, like newborn babies. Now, Peter's not calling us babies here, but to be like newborn babies who long for pure spiritual milk. And that milk, of course, is the Word of God. And why my ESV didn't put that in there, the King James says, as newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. So the milk that Peter's talking about here is, of course, the Word of God. And so like newborn infants, we're to long for, to hunger for the Word of God, to feed on it so that we might grow by it into salvation or in respect to salvation. Now, Peter calls that word, that milk, pure spiritual milk. If you want to, you can look at Psalm 19 with me. And David's going to say basically the same thing about the Word of God. <clears throat> But he has a lot more to say. Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7. And again, those of you who were raised in independent, fundamental, premillennial Baptist churches or similar know how to sing verse 7 through the end. <laughs> the law of the Lord is perfect, Psalm 19, verse 7. And what does it do? It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. And what does it do? It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. What do they do? Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. There's our word. What does it do? It enlightens the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. So the word, the Bible, David tells us is trustworthy, it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true and righteous altogether. Now in the New Testament, <clears throat> Jesus is the true word of God. John 1, 1. Most of you can quote that. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in John 6, 35, Jesus said concerning himself, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. So we are encouraged by Peter to feed on him as the spiritual bread of life. We are to draw nourishment from his teaching and sacrificial work on our behalf. Now, 1 Peter 2, verse 3. Peter says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good or gracious. You may remember that when we talked about Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's where Peter gets his words from. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If indeed you taste it that the Lord is good, then this should be the natural response. We should have within us a hungering, a thirsting for the pure milk of God's word because we have tasted through his word and experienced that the Lord is good. You know anything about that? We like to say, you know, the Lord is good. And then what's the response? All the time. All the time. <laughs> He's good. All the time. We've tasted. You say them? Oh, okay. We've tasted the goodness of God. We've tasted his great mercy that has caused us to be born again. We have tasted what it is like to have been given a living hope, which is eternal life and an inheritance that is imperishable, kept for us by the power of God in heaven. We've tasted what it's like to have the goodness of God at work in our lives as he works all things together for our good. And we've tasted what it's like to be forgiven, to experience his presence and comfort in our lives, and the list goes on and on. We've experienced the goodness of God. Each of us have, if we're indeed children of God. Uh, <clears throat> and when we became children of God, God implanted within us a longing uh, for his word uh, so that we can grow by it. And if we as believers do not feed on the word, we will not grow. We will be like those in Hebrews 5, where the writer in Hebrews 5 and verse 12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So this is constantly emphasized here at Calvary, and it needs to be constantly emphasized that, that the main way we grow as Christians is through the reading and studying of the Word of God. We get that through the preaching and the teaching of Roger and others and Ben, uh, but more importantly, we're to get it through our own personal reading of the Scriptures. And like I like to say, you know, if you continue to read the Scriptures and study on your own, uh, even after years, you may not think you've mastered it all. But after a while, 
by reading and studying God's Word yourself, you'll be able to recognize untruth when you hear it. You'll say, well, I don't remember seeing that in my Bible. Where in the world did you get that from? And then, hopefully, by then, you'll be able to go to Scripture uh, and show the individual where they've departed. So by feeding and drinking from the Word of God and being nourished by it, we grow up in respect to salvation. That is, we grow in our faith and hope and confidence in the salvation that is ours and awaits us at the second coming of Christ. And as we grow, we'll hopefully, slowly, lose our appetite for malice and envy and deceit and slander and all the rest. And through the word of God, we taste the goodness of God. Now, if you still struggle with those things, then my advice is you just need to drink more. Drink more from the word of God and uh, <clears throat> until you're convinced uh, that you need to love like God does and uh, forgive one another even as God and Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Uh, <clears throat> and then to encourage his readers uh, and us among, along those lines, Peter again turns our attention uh, to who they were in relation to Christ. Verse 4, <clears throat> he says, As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 4, as you come to him, to Jesus, that is. And now in verse 4, Peter describes Jesus in, in three ways. First, as a living stone. Second, as rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So Peter describes Jesus as a living stone. Of course, this, of course, is metaphorical language. Jesus isn't a literal rock, but he's like a stone. And like a stone, he has firmness, stability, and weight. And praise the Lord, he's nothing like this stone. <laughs> anyway, remember that song you used to sing on church? Do you ever sing, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand? Mm -hmm. All other ground is what? Thinking sands, yeah. Well, he's a living stone, and this stone is alive. Jesus is alive, and in a spiritual sense, he's, he's a stone. He's our rock, he's our de defense, and David mentions that over and over again as you read through the book of Psalms. And as we shall see, a living stone that makes up the cornerstone of the house of God. And then Peter will say more about that, of course, in verse 6 and 7. I just skipped a bunch. Next, Peter, Jesus says, has been rejected by men. We already know this. John told us this in his gospel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John 1.11. <clears throat> Isaiah told us, prophesied that this would happen in Isaiah 15, verse 3, where he says he was despised and rejected by men. But Peter says, in God's sight, he's a living stone chosen, chosen by God, chosen by God as a living stone for a purpose, and in God's sight, Jesus is precious. In the final analysis, it did not matter what men thought of Jesus or what men chose to do with Jesus. What mattered was what God thought of Jesus and what God had planned for Jesus. So the same is true for us. It doesn't matter what others think about us, what they do with us. In God's sight, we are precious. David says we're 
the apple of his eye. We're set apart by his spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and to enjoy him forever. Now, Peter says, as you come to Jesus, this living stone, verse 5, <clears throat> you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable God to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, like Jesus, you're living stones, spiritual stones, and you're being built up as a spiritual house. Of course, this concept's not new with Peter. Paul talks about this often, actually, beginning in Ephesians 2.19, where he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, <coughs> talking to Gentile Christians, just like Peter is, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 <clears throat> I should be making you turn there, but you don't have Bible. There's only one Bible here to turn pages and oh, maybe two. <laughs> So as I go from verse to verse, you're just got to have to listen and trust me or grace to those verses real quick. First Corinthians 3.16, <clears throat> Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among you, among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then the writer to Hebrews in chapter 3, <coughs> beginning at verse 6, said, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house indeed if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting, and our boasting in our hope. And then Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write my, on him the new name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. And then when they get to Revelation 11, John sees the temple or the city that's coming down or measures the temple of the city of God which he calls the New Jerusalem, which is, of course, the Bride of Christ. So 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves, like living stones, <coughs> are being built up as a spiritual house. Now that's a privilege. We individual believers in Jesus are part of a building that God has been building as, the dwelling, as his dwelling place. And not only are we precious to God, but we are a valuable part of his plan to make for himself a dwelling place. In Christ, we're not nobody. <coughs> You're not trash. <coughs> You're not worthless, no matter how you feel or what others say. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, I don't mind that I have to read my notes to you. <laughs> because one of the great preachers in the Great Awakening, Mr. Jonathan Edwards, that's what he did. He never took his eyes off the page 
<coughs> he just said there and read, read his sermon. And then, of course, if you remember the one famous sermon that he read, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he just kept his face in his notes, read his sermon, and in the meanwhile, people were hanging onto their chairs <laughs> for fear of slipping off into, into hell. <coughs> so I find precedent in, in reading my notes. Spurgeon said that if you want to write notes, that's just fine, but leave them at home. I can't do that. Every once in a while I do, you know, I'll come with just a few pieces of notes or something like that. But with my age, I can quote scripture, but I can't tell you where it is. So if I don't do it ahead of time and write it in there, then I just have to say, this is what the Bible says somewhere. And I have precedent for that too, because Paul, the writer of the Hebrews, does the same thing. You know, he says, and in a certain place, this was said. <laughs> so forgive me. <coughs> All that to say, uh, we're like living stones being built up into a spiritual house, God's house, his temple, and we are now considered by God as a holy priesthood. As living stones in the building, we are part of a holy priesthood. This is what the scholars call the priesthood of the believers. We're a holy priesthood of believers. We're not alone, or are we to act alone? We are part of a household or a brotherhood, if you will, of priests. You ever think of yourself as a priest before God? Well, maybe your husband or the men, you know, but you women, the same. Uh, much less holy priest. Now, what was the function of the Old Testament priest? Well, it was to lead the people of God in worship through the offering of sacrifices to God. And as praises, Peter says, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Not animal sacrifices, but offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Can you think of any? That's okay. I got four or five myself. <laughs> so what are these spiritual sacrifices? Look at Romans 12.1. <clears throat> you can quote it, most of you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How about Philippians 4.18? Peter says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Hebrews 13.15. The writer says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And in 13.16 of Hebrews, he says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In the Old Testament, Psalm 50 Verse 23, David says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. <clears throat> and then Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the presenting of ourselves to God to be his servants, giving to meet the needs of others, sharing what we have with others, doing good, praise, thanksgiving, gratitude, and the offering of broken and contrite hearts. 
These, the Bible says, are spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, <clears throat> Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus was chosen to be the cornerstone of God's spiritual building. He's the cornerstone, and we're the stones that make up the rest of the building. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the honor, Peter says in verse 7, is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. 1 Corinthians 1.23, <coughs> Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then Jesus said in Luke 20, verse 17, to those he was speaking to, he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken in pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So they stumble because they disobey the word, Peter says, as they were destined to do. Now, the last time I taught this section, immediately the hands went up, all the objections. This could be a hard, troubling verse to some, where Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word. Well, the fact of the matter is they disobey. That's what they choose to do. And the stumbling is what God determined to do. So the idea of God predetermining actions of non-believers is hard for some people to take, but it's observed not only here, but several other times in the New Testament and Scripture. You want to look at Romans 9? beginning at verse 17, where Paul quotes Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16. And in Romans 9, 17, Paul says, God says concerning Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then he concludes in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills. And then verse 22 of the same chapter, he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even as even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then in 2 Peter, chapter 2 and verse 3, Peter says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then Jude, verse 4, Jude says, For certain people have crept unnoticed, who long ago crept into you unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. 
ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the scripture says that God does even predetermine what he's going to do with non-believers. And I can't fully explain it to you. All I know is scripture, as you just saw, apparently teaches it. So it's one of those things that, that we accept, not because we understand, but because that's what the Bible says. Now, back to 1 Peter and 2 and verse 9, where Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And the thing I want you to notice in what Peter just said there is that what Peter is using here is Old Testament descriptions of the people of God to describe the New Testament people of God. You are a chosen race. Am I running out of time? The 12.30 yet, or 12 or after 12? Five after. Five after? I haven't 12.30, they tell me, so I'll be quick, because this is the part I really wanted to get to. <laughs> if you look at Deuteronomy 7.6, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, Moses says to Israel, For you are a people holy of, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh. And then in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, verse 15, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. And then Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and I just want you to see that these passages are saying the same thing that Peter saying. You shall be my trusted possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so now Peter, using this Old Testament language, applies it to his New Testament believers, to those he's writing to. And, uh, and he says, you are a chosen race, like he said in chapter 1 and verse 1, or verse 2, you're elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, you are a chosen race, God has a plan, and we're part of that plan. Now, here's what I think is interesting. In Genesis 1-1, you can quote it, in the beginning, God did what? <laughs> Created the heavens and the earth. Now, God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he's the creator of man. And when he created man, he created what we now call or know as the human race. Initially, the human race was perfect, sinless. But Adam and Eve sinned against God, and they fell from perfection 
and came under the wrath and curse of God and the sentence of death, physical and spiritual, temporal and eternal. And now we all know that God could have immediately passed the sentence of both temporal and eternal death and the fallen human race would have ended. And that God, if he wanted to, could have started all over again. But that's not what his choice was. Now, why? Well, because he's God, and that was his choice. But apparently, he did not plan for the human race to go on in perfection, worshiping him as the trees do. Rather, he planned to let the human race fall. Theologians call that to degree, the de decree to allow the fall. He let the human race fall and continue because he had another plan. And that plan appears to be to create for himself from this fallen human race, another race, purely his own, who would worship him in spirit and in truth from hearts of gratitude and love for having experienced his grace, mercy, great mercy and forgiveness. Things a perfect human race could never experience. In other words, a peculiar race of people who would come to know God in the fullness of his divine character and attitudes. The unfallen angels in heaven rejoice at the salvation of one sinner, according to Luke 15.10. But unfallen angels know nothing of the joy of forgiveness. Now, why God does the things this way, I am not prepared to explain fully, but that seems to be what he planned to do. And that's how it happened, and that's how God continues to let it happen, because out of the fallen human race of sinners, God-haters, he's chosen to save us and make us part of his chosen race, his peculiar people. In Christ, all believers make up a dwelling place of God, a race of redeemed people chosen by God. We, have, we may have multiracial congregations, but as believers, we are one race. There is no distinction and should never be between color or nationality or language or occupation or education. We recognize these distinctions and welcome one another, but these are not to stand in the way of our fellowship. These distinctions <coughs> rather serve to enable us to, mass, to minister as a body to all types of people. So spiritually, there, there are two races of man, the fallen race of Adam and the chosen, redeemed race of Christ. All men are in Christ or in Adam. Now, Peter goes on to say, you're a royal priesthood in Jesus, a royal priesthood. So in Jesus, we are both princes and kings. <clears throat> As such, we have God-given authority to pray for all men everywhere. We have the authority to declare and to teach what God says is true. And remember, as Roger pointed out, that's the responsibility of all believers. We all participate in the work of the ministry, and uh, we, are, we have the authority to say what God says is right and wrong. We have authority to praise God in self-sacrifice and praise and giving, and we have the God-given authority to worship as God commands. Human government has no authority over the church in these matters. We also have the right to rule over our families and households, husbands, our kings, and wives, or queens. Next, Peter says, we are a holy nation. Like Israel of old, we are part of a nation set apart by God to be a holy people for his glory and witness. The word we refers to all believers. 
And not only do we become a part of a new race of redeemed people, but we've become a part of a holy nation apart from every other nation known unto man. And there are no national requirements for being a Christian, however. And we are a people for his own possession, Peter says. We belong to him. Psalm 2, the father said to the son, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. 1 Corinthians 6 says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And why has God made us who he says we are? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession? Well, Peter says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. So that's why he made us who we are and declares who we are so that as the people of God, as this royal priesthood, as this chosen people, as this peculiar race, we can proclaim to the world the excellencies of our God who brought us out of darkness into light. So how are we doing? Is your life declaring the glory of God? Is your life demonstrating the fact that you've been brought out of darkness into his marvelous light? Can the world see a change in you, a behavior in you, a walk in you that they can't see anywhere else? Peter goes on to say in, in chapter 4, don't be surprised at the suffering you experience. And don't be surprised when, when, when the people you used to hang around with uh, think it's strange that you don't drink and dance and carry on like, like you used to do. He said, this, this, and they malign you, and this is for the glory of God. Well, we are who we are, and Peter encourages his readers to remember that in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulty, remember who you are. You're a child of the living God, called by God, separated by God, equipped by God. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a chosen race. You're not a part, you live as a part of the human race, but you have what we call dual citizenship. You're also a member of the race of the family of God, this peculiar people that he is calling out to himself from this world of fallen men. And we need to be grateful and thankful, and we need to be ready to share with others how God has saved us, how he's called us to a new life, how he has continued to bless us in so many ways, how he's changed our lives, and how we can do the same for them. So, I'm done. Heavenly Father, you're a great and wonderful and awesome God, and we thank you for who you are. And we thank you for who we are. We matter, and we have an important place and role in the house that you're building for yourself, the temple of the one true and living God making up block by block, stone by stone, individual by in individual, the bride of Christ and the temple of our God. Bless us now as we go our ways and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to share with those around us in the world we live in, the excellencies, the wonder of our great God and Savior, of our great God and of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you in his name, amen.